Kimberly C. Paul. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. I can't believe I'm talking to you, Hope Edelman. I have to admit, uh, when I was in my late 20s, I read your book, Motherless Daughters. A therapist recommended it uh, for me, and I never thought I would, would ever meet you. And and about, a, what, a year, year and a half ago, we happened to be in New York City at an event together, and uh, I have just fallen in love with who you are. We talked before we started recording that so many people aren't that, um, and so you don't want to meet your mentors or the people because you they, they might ruin how you feel about them, but you what you see is what you get. Um, you're no different. Um, and I love that about you. Um, thank you. That's so kind, Kimberly. Well, and you know, I was sitting on an event the other night and you were in it and you were reading some of your new book after grief, which I golly love. Um, and I, you were talking about your mom and I started crying. I, I, you, you to me, uh, are the perfect soul to be in this in this field because you have a heart and mind and you're, and you're so empathetic and compassionate. And I, I just, uh, I just want to say thank you for a, who you were to the 28 year me, you helped me in so many ways, but here I am in now in my late forties and I call you a friend and, uh, I'm so lucky to do that. Um, so welcome to death by design podcast. I'm happy to talk about your new book. It is a, an honor to be here and to call you a friend as well, Kimberly. So we, I would be remiss if I, if we did not chat a little bit about the motherless daughter book, because it was such a huge book in my life, but also for many, many people. And what I loved about after grief, your new book is that you went back and actually re-engaged some of these conversations with some of the people you interviewed, what, 20 some years? ago 27 years yeah it's crazy so how did how did motherless daughters for those of you who don't know hope's first book um tell us a little bit about that book and how you are now revisiting it um within your new book after grief sure well motherless daughters uh, came about because my mom died when i was 17 and there was no book for girls who lost a mom or adult women who were um, under the age of 40 when it happened Yet I tended, I knew a lot of women who were, or I was meeting women who were in that demographic with me. And it was almost as if we were being overlooked in the psychological literature and in the popular literature. Because I kept going to bookstores and libraries looking for a book and I couldn't find one. And then I wound up in graduate school in the um, early 1990s. And I had two really significant professors and mentors who encouraged me to write the book myself. I mean, I was, it was kind of a no-brainer. I was in a nonfiction writing program. <laughs> so I mean, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't such a big stretch. But uh, it was for me to write a book. I was in my late 20s, and uh, I didn't know how to write a book. I went to Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City and got a book called How to Write a Book Proposal. No, you did not. I did. I totally did. And I just followed what the book told me to do. And I wrote a book proposal and started sending it around to agents in New York that were like friends of friends. I mean, it was so grassroots at the beginning. 
And so that was back in the early 90s. That book came out in 1994. And for that book, I interviewed, uh, I think, 94 women who had lost mothers when they were children, teenagers, or young adults. And um, that book has since been revised twice. So it was published in 1994 when I was 29 years old. And I was single and living in New York. And then um, we did a reissue of that book in 2004. I believe it was, or 2006, maybe 2006. And by that time, I was uh, 41. I had two children of my own. I was married. I had two daughters. I was about to turn the age. My mother was when she died. I, you know, all oh. these significant milestones had either recently occurred or were about to occur. So, occur. so I was right in the thick of it in a way I wasn't at 29 when I revised the book for the second edition. And then it went through a third edition for the 20th anniversary in 2014. And at that point, I was 50 and looking back, and an interesting thing happened when I did that. When I revised the book for the second time, and I looked at Motherless Daughters and all the material that I'd written before, and I thought about updating the personal sections, I thought, no, you know what? I'm in such a different place now. I need to let that 41-year-old write this book and tell the story. She's the one, not the 29-year-old as much, not me today. But that 41-year-old who's right in the middle of everything really needs to be the voice that carries women through this book. So I let her do that. I left my younger self, you know, and I only stepped in as a 50-year-old in the epilogue. Oh, wow. But I thought, I have a lot to say, not necessarily to the women who've just lost their moms, but to the people who are 20 or 30 years down the road, because now I know what that's like. It's 39 years since my mother died. That's a long time now. And it's 16 years since my dad passed away. And he gets short shrift in the Motherless Daughters book because, you know, it's about losing my mom, but my father was very significant and I had him in my life for much longer. So the after grief, I think of it as Motherless Daughters for grownups because this is me looking back now over the long arc of my life and seeing, and this is really important to what you were just saying, Kimberly, a lot of what the after grief is about is how the facts of a death never change. And my mom is always going to have died of breast cancer in 1981 when she was 42 and I was 17. I would love to change those facts, but I can't. What has changed quite a bit over the years, though, is my relationship to those facts and my interpretation of them. And they have looked very, very different at different points in my life. And as I tell the story of my mom dying when I was young, I tell it differently. And that's what I was discovering by revising Motherless Daughters so many times. But I gained a real appreciation for how our stories shape our identities and how they're so closely linked that when our stories change, our identities change. And in order for our identities to change, our stories need to change. And I started studying narrative therapy. And I really, you know, became immersed in these ideas. And that's how the after grief really came about. But while I was writing it, I could not find any studies that tracked people over decades. There just weren't. You know, that's a longitudinal study in, in the research world. And it's very expensive to track people for 30 or 40 years. And generally, the study will outlive the primary researchers. So there just weren't any. There were anecdotal evidence, a little, but not a lot. And I thought, gee, you know, I really want to know how people's stories change over decades. And then I remembered, duh, I have the transcripts from all of those 94 women from motherless daughters that I interviewed in 1990, 91, 92, 93, right, right around then, you know, I guess it was, you know, the early 90s, probably more like 1991 and two. And 
I have their original stories. What if I could find some of them and re-interview them and see how their stories have changed over 26 or 27 years? And so just using my, my, my sleuthing, you know, techniques, yeah. which basically Google and Facebook <laughs> and white pages, it's not, you know, it's not very sophisticated. But by doing that, I was able to locate about 18 of them and re-interviewed most, if not all of them. And then we had fascinating discussions because I just re-interviewed them as if we'd never spoken before. I said, tell me your story of mother loss as if we're talking for the first time. Now, of course, it had 26 more years folded in. But then I transcribed that interview and we went back and I sent them their original from the 90s. And we looked at them side by side. What's the same? What's changed? You know, how is your point of view? And they, they said, this is such a fascinating experiment for them because they could see their own stories changing. I, this was for me, one of the most rewarding parts of writing this book was reconnecting with those women. And I did most, a lot of the interviews in person. Oh, man. So I got to see them again, like physically, because we could still sit with each other sure. back then. I could physically see them again and they could see me and we had met in person the first time. So we were coming full circle 26 or 27 years later and reuniting and re doing another interview. And I feel like there's probably a whole book just in that. Well, I mean... What What is it like? I mean, did you talk to some of these women throughout the years or was it like 26 years ago, stop, and then here today? There were a handful of them I had heard from over the years. A couple of them had you know, friended me on Facebook. So those were the easy ones to find. They were maybe sure. the 18, there were maybe five or six that I had stayed in loose or close touch with. One or two of them I'd been in very close touch with. Um, but then um, the other ones, no, they just got an email from me out of the blue saying, are you, are you the so-and-so? Because, you know, a lot of these women either divorced and changed their names or married and changed their names. And so I had to go with the names they'd been using 26 years ago. So a, a lot of them I just couldn't find. Uh, some of them sadly had passed away. 26 years is a long time. And yeah, sure. the women that I'd interviewed, some of them were in their 50s, 60s, 70s at that time in the 90s. But um but I was able to find, you know, a fair number of them. And it was brilliant to sit with them because, you know, I remembered how they looked back mm. when we first met and to see them again and to just realize, wow, we have in certain ways traveled this arc together, even if we haven't been in touch. And what really struck me, Kimberly, was how many of them, when they told their story of mother loss now as an adult, um, pointed to that interview we had done in the 90s as a turning point in their story because it was the first time someone had asked them or given them permission to tell their story and talk about their loss. And I found that to be really profound, actually, really moving. I, I bet. And, you know, I, I haven't gotten through the entire book, but I, it, I can't put it down because I finally feel someone gets it. Because Rob died 20 years ago. And him and his mother and I will still get on the phone today and we'll be like, sorry, I'm crying. And, and we're, we both tell each other, no, 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 no. For some reason, it now when we shed a tear, it's like, ah, oh, it was like that I loved. It's, it's so, totally different um, as a 49-year-old than a 28-year-old. Um, and, and especially doing the whole live well, die well tour, I talked about Rob all the time. It was almost like I, he re-died because it was in my daily 
everybody was captivated by the robbed story. And I felt, I was like, but he was real to me. It's just not a story. And it was a little confusing to me because, you know, when you write, write about the story and people know that story, you kind of second glance, like, how do you know that it was in your book? I'm like, Oh, right. Right. You know, it's, they bring up details that you somewhat have forgotten. It's true. And, you know, while um, those of us in this field who talk about our loved ones who've died, you know, we, we wind up in this strange zone where my mom has become kind of a commodity in a way, or my story of losing her and her, her illness, because I talk about it in public so often and I've written about it. And I did a live event the other night where during the Q&A, the last question, and I've been doing this for 26 years this was the first time I've ever heard this question. It was a beautiful question. It was, what can all of us do tonight to honor your mom and help lift you up the way that you lift us up? And I thought, oh, that's such a beautiful question because I forget sometimes. I mean, I don't forget, but I overlook, I should say, sometimes that my mom was a very real person and she was my mother. She wasn't a story. You know, she wasn't right. an icon for the motherless daughters movement because the women in the community, because now I've done 13 retreats and there are several hundred women who've done really intensive work with me and together and have bonded very closely. Um, they are aware that we would not be in that room or at that retreat center had my mother not died in 1981. Um, they wouldn't be certainly there with me in that place on that day meeting each other. And so in a way, she's an inspiration for their stories. Mm -hmm. But she also was just, you know, my mom, Marsha Edelman, who was born in 1938 and lived in, grew up in Mount Vernon, New the York. Piano, you know, and played you know, the piano, you know, the music teacher and, and cooked kitchen, chicken cacciatore in a crock pot. I mean, she was that <laughs> And I, I overlook that sometimes because... It, because her death overshadows her life in my work. And I, so I consciously need to work to make sure that doesn't happen. And, and you have two daughters yourself. I do. And so she's their grandmother too. And I have mm -hmm. to remember in, when I talk about her, she's not my mom, she's their grandmother. I want them to know that and feel that. So I, I, real, I, I realized that for like the first 10 or 12 years of my older daughter's life, at least I, I, wasn't real conscious of that. My mom was something that was mine in my work. And and Alison Gilbert, who wrote Past and Present and mm -hmm. Parents, you know, Alison, Alison's a yes. really important voice in this field. And she, when she wrote Parentless Parent, she talked with me and gave me this tip. It's in the book too, I believe, about how when we talk with our children about parents, our parents who've died, we shouldn't say my mother or my father. We should say your grandma, Anne, or your grandpa, Joel, or, you know, we should let the kids have a connection with them, even if they're not physically present. So I try to do that more now with my daughters. They are now almost 19 and 23. And their relationship with my mom is really, you know, through her children. Mm. Me, mm. my sister, my brother. Yeah, sure. Sure. You know, what I love about this book is that you do talk about the rings of grief. Um, and, and I love the model, the long arc of bereavement. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and your experience and how, how you evolved into that? Because you I mean, you created it, like you said, this was sort of a new thing. Um, you hadn't gone back and, and no one's followed people for 30 years. And, and that's what I, I think I find fascinating, because I too find I love research. I love research and digging and peeling back the onion. I mean, how did this whole 
long arc of bereavement evolve in your in your mind? Well, it's a good question, um, and it, it's tied to the title of the book because I think we I can't really answer that question without talking very briefly about sort of the history of grief theory, which is main was main, has mainly been for the past hundred years on helping people get through the acute phase of grief, which is the first couple of years. And the original models of grief that, you know, started developing around the 19-teens and then were, you know, developed even further, moving us through into the, the stages of grief in, in the 19, early 1970s after Kubler-Ross's book on death and dying, were all about uh, a linear and progressive and sequential process. And when I wrote Motherless Daughters in the early 1990s, that's not what I was hearing from women. I was hearing them talk about grief as something that was very cyclical and the cycles got bigger and longer. You know, it might be a year or two before they had a grief spike or a grief surge, you know, and, and felt sad again or, or missed their mom for a new reason, <clears throat> but it was still happening. And a lot of them were carrying this sense of shame, like I must've done it wrong. And so I talked about that in Motherless Daughters. Motherless Daughters in some ways was very timely and in some ways ahead of its time. But I was just naive. Look, I was 28 years old when I started writing that book. I was a grad student. Maybe I was even 27 when I started it. And I just went out and interviewed people because I had a journalism background. And one of my mentors said, go collect people's stories because that's how she wrote books. So that's what I did. I didn't know at the time that that was called qualitative research anecdotal research, you know, you're collecting people's stories, you are centering other people as the experts of their own experience. In the 1990s, this was not really held in esteem in academia. It was all about qualitative studies. It was about questionnaires and statistical analyses of the answers and data-driven conclusions. And so I wasn't coming from that world. But people really responded to the book when it came out because it had real-life stories and People were speaking their truths, and their truths, you know, overlapped with a lot of the reader's truths. So I also, though I did not know it at the time, because this is something you can only see when you're looking back, that book was that book came out right as grief theory was going through a big, big shift, and it was shifting from what was popularly known as the breaking bonds theory of grief, which was that we need to separate and detach from our loved ones when they die so we can get past it or get over it or move on. And we need to leave them behind and move forward into whatever's going to come next in our life. And that might include attaching to somebody else. Like if you're widowed, for example, right. if you're a child losing a parent a little harder to, you know, have that same attachment with someone else rarely happens. But Sometimes, you know, if you have a really, really wonderful step parent that comes in when you're quite young. <clears throat> but grief, grief theory was shifting into what became known as the relational model of grief, which was about how we remain attached to our loved ones after they die. And this was all happening in the right at the same time in the early to mid 90s. I just, that was a coincidence for motherless daughters. I had no idea what was <laughs> happening. I mean, I, when I look back, I can see it. But right, also what, the way that it was also ahead of its time is it took another good solid, I'm going to say 10 to 20 years before academia started saying, hey, this qualitative research, you know, grounded theory, it's called, when you talk to people and you collect their stories and you analyze their narratives instead of, you know, the 
boxes they check on a questionnaire. This is really useful. This is giving us, you know, more complex and insights into human behavior. We should do more of this. So by the time, you know, the after grief came along, there was no question that that's how I, I was. I do quote certain studies, but not with the same rigor I did in motherless daughters. I'm really depending much more on the interviews and my own experience in this book and my own knowledge after 25 years in the field, working one-on-one -on -one as a coach and as a retreat leader with motherless women, and also talking with lots of other people who have had other kinds of losses as well, because the after grief is not about mother loss per se. It's for anybody, male or female, who lost anyone they loved in the past. There's an emphasis on childhood bereavement because those are the people who were most shaped by a loss um, for a very long time. But I interview, you know, people who are in middle age now who lost siblings or best friends or, you know, anywhere in their 30s, 40s, you know, all the way up. Well, you know, I, I do think Motherless Daughter was innovative because, and that is the very reason why I connected to it, because it became, it, it tell, told a story. And I believe you opened the door because um, you were one of the first books that actually interviewed and allowed them to be the main character in their own story, which look what Brene Brown has done with, with her studies. And, and I, I feel like, you know, she, she has followed similar different, um, different worlds, but still similar in that storytelling. And I believe storytelling is so powerful and you were before your time. And that's what I loved about 20 years ago, reading that book and then revisiting the same people again. It was almost like I, a reunion in some sort for even the reader. It was amazing. Amazing. The ones who appear in the aftergrief, I give them the same names they had in Motherless Daughters. I love so it. You can, you can see them again. Yeah. I, I actually went and got my copy of Motherless Daughters and had to re wanted to reread certain things in that book to be like, oh yeah, because I had, that Motherless Daughter was like, I had notes in, it was like a, a guidebook to me. Um, but you know what that book did and what After Grief is, what I'm finding now, is it's still giving me that permission that no matter how I grieve, I'm doing it the way I feel is is the way I should. Um, I don't have to have a model to, to go. And I, I mean, just even talking with Ken Ross about his mother with uh, Kubler-Ross, this is, this is just the beginning of stages. It doesn't mean that it ends at stage five, because I, was, I think I'm on like stage 521. Um, it, it, is an, it is an evolution. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Ken Ross and I are Facebook friends. I can't wait to have a conversation with him soon, because I think his mother was one of the most brilliant minds of the century. Oh. There's no question about it. In fact, the after grief, um, what is it called? The epigraph is, is the epigraph. The epigraph. Yeah. yeah. I never remember, but the, the opening quote for the after grief is. I know. I saw ones. that. It says. Now, do you know, Ken? I, I've never met him. No. You know what? I, he was supposed to come on the podcast. Uh, I was recording him earlier and he texts me. He goes, look, I had insomnia. I need to introduce you to him because you. Oh, I'd love to meet him. Oh my God. I will bow down in honor of his mother. I, I, the quote that I use is the loss happens in time. In fact, in a moment but its aftermath lasts a lifetime. You know, when I was writing this book, um, because most bereavement professionals, you know, say their grief does not happen in stages. It just doesn't. You know, it's an ill-fitting model for a very, you know, messy and complex 
human experience and also a very, very individual one. But Elizabeth Kubler-Ross never intended for these five stages of grief to be co-opted and, and interpreted the way that way they were. And a lot of people don't know that. These were the five stages of dying. She did brilliant work with the terminally ill. She completely changed the cultural conversation around death and end of life. But she never intended or did not initially intend for those stages to be applied to the mourners left behind. And I went back, and you can see this on, anyone can find this on YouTube, and it's actually worth a look. Go back and look at the interviews with her in the 1970s, because the media loved the idea of the five stages of grief. Such a good soundbite. And there's an Oprah interview with I her. I saw way it. Back when, you see it? when Oprah was on this like, talk show I've never even heard of. And she says to Kubler-Ross, she says, so people should follow the stages, right? And, and, and Dr. Kubler-Ross is just like, she's apoplectic. She says, no, 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 that's not what I meant at all. Um, you know, you, if you feel like crying, cry. If you feel like screaming, scream. Like, do not try to constrain or fit your experience into this prepackaged narrative. You know, there are going to be some people who probably go through what look like those stages because grief is so individual. But for most of us, it's not like that at all. And no, no, no. So um, I really appreciate her work and her later work, which most people mm. have not read, you know, like The Wheel of Life. She's a wonderful thinker and writer. Absolutely. And, you know, even Dame Cicely Saunders, I, I, I often think about these two strong women, that they would be so disappointed and, and how the interpretation has been misunderstood. It might be, but I think if not for the five stages of grief, we might not have gotten to other forms of grief. So I think it was a really valuable and important stepping stone in a way. Absolutely. To open the door. In the beginning of your book, After Grief, it, it, it talks a little bit about you going to the grocery store and you have a grief spike. Um, and I love the way you talked about that. I wanted to, even at, at times, you know, when I'm the happiest, I always sort of look around to think, what's going to happen? What's the worst thing that could happen right now? I mean, do you, what, what, do you have those same feelings or how do you work through that? You know, I just, I, I am a, I am a proponent of letting the feelings work through me when they grab me and making space for them because I think the cost of suppressing them or pushing them aside for too long is too great. Um, all of the research that's been done on how the body holds the score, you know, Bessel van der Kolk's work and more, um, is about how um, stress and, you know, skin conductivity studies show that when we are suppressing our emotions, we are having a physiological response, or, and it's often a negative response. And there are more longer-term studies like the ACE studies that look at stressors that are never expressed and the impact that has on our mental health, our cardiovascular systems, you know, even our autoimmune, even autoimmune diseases and certain kinds of cancer. Um, you know, we're not always in a position uh, geographically or socially where we could let a feeling just take hold of us and, and run its course. And so we may have to postpone it or put it off for a while. But I think, you know, what we should be thinking of doing is hitting the pause button rather than the stop button at those moments. You, you talk about building your team, like when those spikes happen. Um, yes. And I yes. love that because I never, I, you know, I'm a, I love team sports and it does take a team, your team to get you through sometimes some hard days. But what does that mean? Talk to me a little bit about what do you mean by build your team? 
Well, it's just the people that you can count on and go to and, and, and help who will help lift you up if, if you're having a, a low point or if your grief is resurging. Um, you'll, you know, you, you build that team by assessing who can handle emotions, right? Who can be there for me? Who knows how to listen? actively instead of trying to fix me. Mm. Uh, and that can be a therapist, you know, it can be professionals on your team. It can be a close friend. If you're lucky, it's a sibling, it right. can be a partner if you're also. Um, I have a couple good friends, you know, that I can always text when I'm feeling low. I'm really close with my sister and my brother and sister-in-law and my, both of my sisters-in-law. And, um, <clears throat> but I think it's really important to feel that you're being held, you know, that you're being mm. contained because the research, all the research about, um, healing from bereavement, um, especially in social psychology, talks about the importance of what is called confiding. And confiding means that we are sharing our story with somebody else, a compassionate other who knows how to listen. And um, so those are the kinds of people I think a team should be made of. Um, if there's only one person on your team for a while, that's fine too. You just want to want to have at least one. Yeah, you know, between you and that one person, you're still two. And I, I feel like communication by giving words to how you're feeling, even if it is, you know, a week from now, you're like, why did I feel that way? You just to verbalize it and have someone validate it is is really really important. It's also really important, Kimberly, to not think like, oh, that person doesn't want to hear. I'm going to burden them with my sadness because. Because some studies have been done and show that there are benefits to the listener as well. So you're actually sometimes doing a good thing for them by sharing your story. And, you know, they if, if it's someone who has a similar experience, they can share with you how they handle things. And, you know, it becomes a very sort of like vicarious experience where you start healing each other. Well, you know, that's what I found on this tour. You know, I, I'm driving in this RV. I, it has all these logos about living well and dying well. And when I would drive into an RV campground, people were like, hey, what are you doing? And once I told them I shared my story, it almost gave them permission that it was okay to share their story too. That you wouldn't that you wouldn't look away. Right. You're model you're modeling good grief behavior for other people when you talk about the losses you've experienced because it gives them a forum where they say, Oh, maybe I have a lot of people in my life who really don't know how to handle this or don't know how to hear it. But here's somebody who does. So maybe I'll share some of my story too. And then it becomes a very reflexive experience. And the most important thing I've learned is that when when complete strangers call Rob by his name to me or talk about Rob using that name, it makes me, I don't, I can't tell you how happy that makes me that he's, that he's still alive, that he's still living 20 years later and apart. I mean, it just is a great kind of evolution, but you know, the one place I don't think we do things well is the workplace. Oh no. We, we suck at workplace it. bereavement. Whew. You know, I did a, um, I did a session recently. I was a guest speaker for a friend's class at San Diego State, a communications class. They were talking about workplace bereavement. So I did some reading up on articles that the students had read before I spoke. And yeah, there are some, the studies on workplace bereavement really show how poorly it's handled. It's very interesting. It's very gendered too. Men feel that the workplace is not the place to bring any of your personal experience. You don't share anything from home. Women felt a little different. Sometimes they were closer with their colleagues or had relationships with them where they may have, you know, been looking for more support. Um, you know, crying in the bathroom at work is a real thing. 
right? The real thing because it removes you. And but you no, know, workplaces are not known for supporting the bereaved or you know helping them through a tough time. Three days of paid bereavement leave on average in this country. Come on, I mean, three days in some cultures is not even enough to, to bury your loved one. So then you're going into unpaid days or personal days or, you know, and then, and then so your whole year becomes effective. You have to take mental health days in order to go to a funeral for, you know, your, your parent or your sibling. I mean, what's that all about? You know, and I found even with hospice, we're even within the hospice world office, we do so great with patients. But when our coworker is suffering um, a serious illness and they die, we suck. Everything we know goes out the window. Is that right? Really? Yes, absolutely. Oh, and that's where, you know, even in the hospice world, we struggled trying to. Uh, even embrace our own grief, whether it was a coworker or even someone coming back in from losing a sibling or a husband, or, I mean, we, I still, we still struggled like any normal person. Huh. Isn't that amazing? So is that because you felt that the hospice workers that you associated with were really, really good at guiding other people through end of life care? And and perhaps just not as good as supporting their peers. I don't know. I think that's one element. I also feel like, you know, sometimes when you work at the bedside of the dying, um, you also have this innate ability to. It is work. But when you're affected personally, it's tough. Um, and we it was we just did not have the tools to, to help even especially when your bereavement counselor is suffering from that loss too. You needed like a third party to come in and help instead of, so everyone had that space instead of using each other. Um, So yeah, I think there's a lot of room to improve within even the end of life field. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. So, you know, 2020, um, the last time I saw you, we were in Los Angeles um, it was the last face-to-face event in February of 2020. Um, I haven't seen right. yet many people in person since COVID has changed all of our lives. Um, and here we are, we're grieving this year in so many ways and different ways. Then we have this thing called an election coming up, which is is really going to be interesting of how we're going to grieve for the good or the bad or the ugly. But are there any kinds of tips how to move through this crazy world as we begin barely to grieve the life we used to know? Well, I think it's important that we not let go of our memories or our attachment to that earlier time because we're going to need to find our way back. If you're talking about like collective grief over what's been lost this year, we will not go back to the, exactly the way things were before. And in some ways, that's going to be good. Right. I think, you know, that's how a, I think that's how a culture, you know, evolves sure. and grows. But I've been asked a lot about COVID in the past, you know, nine months or so, and how I think COVID is going to change uh, bereavement and mourning. And in the short term, it's changing it dramatically. I mean, we can't gather for funerals. We can't bury or mourn the loss or celebrate the lives of our dead the way that is really meaningful and important for us to come together collectively because we don't have 
other many other rituals or opportunities to do that in dominant white culture. Right. You know, we I, I do want to acknowledge that grief is really culturally relative, mm-hmm. and this is a very you know heterogeneous society, and there are different subcultures within American culture that can do a better job, but even then they can't gather and and perform their rituals. Um, if those rituals require the participation of other people. And so um, we've had to let go of that for a while. I don't know that there's a law anywhere about when we can and should, there may be some religious laws, but um, maybe, you know, those religious laws could be flexible in the year of a pandemic to accommodate the needs of the grievers because, um, we're going to have to postpone the memorials and celebrations of life. And we don't know how long we're going to be postponing them for. It could be a year. It could be two years. Um, yeah, you're, but, it's still going on. But I, I don't think there's any law that says that a celebration of life has to happen within like 30 days of somebody's death. If it takes two or three years and people have been waiting, I still think it's really important for us to come together and be able to do that in, in, in gathering in person if, as long as it's safe to support the mourners who may have to put some of their needs on hold for a while. I do think, you know, the idea of Zoom funerals and Zoom memorials and people are getting kind of fatigued by that. It's not the same, it's not as good. You know, we we do it to support the family, of course, Um, but I think it has some benefits. And I hope that when we can come back together for funerals and memorial services and celebrations of life, and of course, weddings as well, in the way that we are accustomed to, that there will be a live stream component for people who can't travel, who are disabled or can't leave their children or, or who can't take time off of work or can't afford a right. flight so that they can still participate and be part of that village that says goodbye when someone passes. Because I think that's really important. And I do see that that's happening on Zoom in a way that we weren't able to allow that to happen before or make room for that. And you know, I love Zoom, and but I, I am craving in person. There's something, yeah, it's, you can't replace that. No, there's no substitute for human touch. There just No, is. nothing, nothing. You know, I, I so enjoyed talking about you. After Grief is out. Um, where can people find it? Everywhere where books are sold? Everywhere where books are sold. Also, theaftergrief.com has has links to many different bookselling outlets online. And there's also an aftergrief community on Facebook that people can join. And I've got a live course or live program coming up that will also have a community. Yeah. So there's a lot happening. Theaftergrief.com has all of it. Well, please, uh, everyone who's listening, you've got to read this book. And if you know Hope's uh, Motherless Daughter book, you will not be disappointed in in reconnecting with some of the people that were interviewed even 20 some years ago. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate you and what you're doing. Uh, You're always... You always are up to something and it, it always is evolving. And it's, I, I tell you, I just so enjoy uh, seeing you succeed. And this book is, I think will stay on my nightstand for a very long time. Um, it's like a, a little bit of a Bible to me and it gives me permission that it's okay to still cry. Thank you so much for saying that. And I think that's, what's going to go on my grave one day. She was always up to something. <laughs> 
I can only hope. I can only hope. Look, my friend, you keep doing great things. Um, and I, I hope I hope we can work together in some collaboration down the road. And um, once again, and I know you know Claire Bedwell-Smith and you guys work together a lot. And uh, Allison Gilbert, I, I just talked to her the other day. It, it just seems like sometimes this is a small community, um, but I am so grateful for this community and um and i'm grateful to uh be your friend and, and call you a friend and next time i'm in los angeles dinner's on me kid okay or next time we're in new york at the same time we'll absolutely again. central park absolutely look you take care and um much love and uh, we'll chat soon absolutely thanks kimberly thanks for joining us today and remember you're the designer This podcast is produced by Jason Andre with Seven Season Films. If you're interested in telling your story via podcast, look him up. You can find him at sevenseasonfilms.com.